what it made me appreciate about building businesses is that you really have to survive much longer than you expect, like four years, five years, six years before you might get that compounding inflection point. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who's joining us here today, Caitlin? Today, we have two guests. One is Saad Rizvi, who is the co-founder with me of Delivery Associates, a McKinsey alum, a, a Y Combinator back founder, and is currently the chief product officer at a Web3 incubator called Superlayer. Saad has a deep background on both te the technology industry and on driving government reform. We're also joined by Al Hassan. Al is the head of digital at Delivery Associates, and he previously founded a Silicon Valley-based technology startup and has a unique perspective about where he thinks AI is going in the future. I'm excited to dig in. It's awesome to have you guys here. Let's jump right in. We've been doing this for a few weeks now. This feels a little different. This The first time we're doing it with two guests, and not only that, Caitlin works with the two of you at Delivery Associates. So even though we have two Avalanche backgrounds and two Delivery Associates backgrounds, it feels like I'm the guest here. So I want to start with just a little background on Delivery Associates. What was the problem here that you identified and what was the solution you guys built there? Yeah, so thanks for having us. For Delivery Associates, the genesis of the idea was around the fact that Governments around the world are really good at making five-year plans, developing strategies, but historically bad at implementing and executing on them. And then when you look at the discourse and what they tend to talk about and focus on is 90% of their attention goes towards the strategy and only 10% to implementation. Whereas our belief having executed on projects in the private sector and other areas was that it actually should be flipped. Getting the strategy right is just 10% of the work and 90% of the work towards getting anything done is around the hard grind of execution. And so Delivery Associates is born out of this idea that governments need to focus on this 90% execution more than that they're doing right now. And then how do we empower leaders around the world to do that effectively? What about DA Digital? What about delivery associates and the notion of delivery captured you as a technologist? How do you think about bringing them together? I remember meeting you both back in the day when I was still in San Francisco in startup land and connecting with you. And we were thinking about how broken government is and the heat at the time that the governments were feeling, as we know, different administrations at that time existed. I'm not going to go into H1s, but the system was broken and it wasn't just broken in the U.S., for me personally, I'm a son of refugees and coming from a region that is broken, I've experienced what broken government can do. And Delivery Associates was on a mission to fix that brokenness, to Saad's point, to not just build plans. We know that consultants can come in and bring in, you know, shiny decks, 200 slides and spend millions of dollars. But the thing is that was different about the mission was folks would roll up their sleeves like you both when you were out there in Punjab and actually deliver for the country. And I thought that was transformational. And the underlying piece was how can we build technology and data systems to then drive that delivery? 
And for me on the product side, I was so excited about scaling such a product to bring in the skill set that I learned out there in the Bay Area to be able to productize, scale that. I don't want to rain on this parade. This is just sounds too much like a rose-tinted view here. You're talking about government delivery, something you traditionally don't expect. And you're talking about a digital element, which also anyone who's ever been to a DMV can tell you is not exactly a strong point. So you may have had a very powerful vision here, but how does it brush up against reality? What does it actually look like? One of the things that uh, puts a stamp on why this is needed is if you look at the typical background of a senior leader in government, look at the typical background of a president, an ambassador, a senator, the head of a large department. Typically, these are people who are really smart. Uh, they come from a background of making inspiring speeches, rallying people behind them, getting large groups of people to come together and vote for them. And then the moment they win the election, they move from their job being giving speeches to their job being, hey, now you're running a bureaucracy with 100,000 employees and a $5 billion bid budget. Go figure it out. And so a lot of the leaders of governments all over the world, but especially in the States, are severely under-equipped to have the management and the kind of financial expertise to run these large organizations, which they certainly put in charge of. And that's why there's always a steep learning curve in moving from the kind of execution and implementation that you would see in the private sector to bring that onto the scale of the public sector. And all the work we do at Delivery Associates was at our helping to fill that gap. And it's a big gap still, but the great thing about doing this is every minuscule movement you have and making a president or prime minister slightly more effective directly has impacts on millions of people because your leverage is really high. Your leverage point is like a million schools across a country or like 100,000 hospitals across a country. And so it is, going back to your point, Irvin, it is a tough learning curve and a tough mountain to overcome. But even if you improve outcomes by a quarter of a percent, it results in improvements over a large scale because of the leverage you get in government. And what about particularly on the digital side? So how much resistance is there? And what does a digital transformation look like within a government context? Yeah, it's a great question. And there is an article, I don't know if you read this, but a piece from Not Boring on how to fix a country in 12 days that really brings to bear something at Delivery Associates, which was so engendered from Michael Barber, which is a sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency to actually push back a little bit on your point where governments have delivered is when there is a fire. As in, when the COVID pandemic hit, how long did it take to build a vaccine? How long did it take us at DA to build a contact tracing app for a country to help contain COVID? It literally took us weeks because we were in an emergency where you got a small group of people and then you have this crazy aspiration and you are able to wrap around that data systems and technology and drive that change. And so change is possible. And now I have to say, you look at the world and there are fires. There's climate emergencies. There's the financial crisis or the cost of living crisis. There's a housing issue. And so we're just surrounded by fires. But what we don't see is actually some of the tech and the private se sector stepping in to fix those. And I think there is that huge opportunity for folks to take and make sure that those fires are put out and that we have a hopefully brighter future.
And that is the sort of idea of delivery is that instead of it being event or crisis focused, it's let's treat the larger issue as the crisis. I'd be like, it's an education emergency because people just get complacent and they think that, oh, it's too complicated. We can't make any progress. So there's a matrix that we do at Delivery Associates that was about like quick wins. What can you do fast and what's like easy? And you get to these like quick wins. And so like fixing a bridge is a quick win or like developing a COVID tracking app is a quick win. But what is highest impact, but longest to do is fixing a broken education system, like bringing down the cost of living. And that's where if you have like real data systems in place in the public sector, you can chip away over time consistently to have progress and to show results on it. But is there a fundamental gap there? So to come back to the piece you brought up, Al, yes, it was a great piece about this tanker that closed the stretch of I-95 and the governor of Pennsylvania basically put like this whole emphasis on rebuilding this half mile stretch of I-95 and it turned into a a big hullabaloo. And in 12 days, they had repaired this half mile stretch. And in the article, Packy McCormick argues that there you can extend this type of delivery by essentially really pushing expectations, bringing like a radical focus on public accountability to a lot more. But it, it does seem like a stretch to take these crisis-driven events like this, the contact tracing app that you develop to fixing a broken education system where it's a series of small steps that must be incrementally done over time. How do you think you connect those two in the minds of in the minds of people and in government? I think there's a magic sauce. And that, in a way, is like Michael Barber's magic sauce, which was the science and the art of delivery. Like, how do you mix the right public attention with the right transparency, bring in the team in place, have the plan to Saad's point in terms of a delivery plan with the right targets, and then to Caitlin's point, the routines that then drive that engine to delivery. And also use technology, like in terms of now leverage social media, right? How can we get all of that energy and momentum in the system, let's say, get to get to target for the UN SDGs, which right now is a crisis in the world, because then we have these sustainable development goals that humanity is not hitting. That's the biggest human aspiration, but no one's paying attention to it. Instead, they're paying attention to, I don't know what media, a story that's not aspirational, that doesn't drive results and isn't going to make the world a better place. So I think there is that galvanization, but it requires a magic source. And most of all, it requires strong leadership. Just to add one thing, which is the impact of technology and spread of information and social media, which is changing things a little bit. So historically, you would see governments have election cycles at some cadence every four or five years. And typically, the leadership of a government wants to work towards the next election cycle so that they can point towards all of the improvements they made in the education or healthcare system because incentives drive outcomes and they want to get elected in the next term. So previously, you would typically see, hey, next election is in 2025. We need to do these three things before then so that we can have a positive story in the next election cycle. Now with technology, it's um, changing a little bit when people have information at their fingertips, both from citizens having access to information, but also citizens responding to the government and giving them their feedback on a more real-time basis rather than that, hey, once every four years through our votes, 
now you're seeing faster cycles of getting feedback from citizens for leadership and leadership communicating information to citizens. And that type of transparency, which technology is enabling, is also hopefully going to drive towards more of a sense of urgency, more shorter term outcomes, and more focus on implementation rather than just a race to the finish line six months before an election. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just one piece of context here. For those who don't know, listening in, Delivery was recently acquired by Trill, private equity, hugely validating outcome for the idea that you guys came up with over a decade ago. Was there a moment when you were on this path where it started to click? We're seeing the resonance amongst the people we're working with in government. Yeah, absolutely. As in, just you're aware, Arvind, DA has worked with over 40 governments around the world. And so just given that percentage, it's already a significant piece of the market. And also, I would say that DA achieved a great valuation, but in terms of the value that it delivered for residents or citizens, I, I don't see that as relative. If you use value-based pricing, there would have been a huge, a huge different multiple put towards the work because you can imagine that hundreds of millions of lives were impacted by the delivery at a scale at the national level and also at the multilateral level. And there is recognition from leadership around the world, both at the multilateral level and the national level of delivery associates work. So it has carved out a niche. It's a recognized brand. And the question is, I think for the future of the company in terms of scalability, can it scale that and go deep within each potentially vertical that it's tackling within those priorities? So we're excited for DA and I think some of us are supporters on the sideline, but remain as proud DA alums and a community of deliverologists and technologists. You know, all of us have worked in many venture-backed businesses and one thing to note is Delivery Associates did not take any venture financing. And similar to any bootstrap business or businesses that haven't raised a lot of capital, that automatically creates a lot of discipline in how things are done, how business development is done, how investments are made. That's not to say we didn't make investments as a business. It just means we had to have a lot more discipline. And as a result, I don't think there was like a watershed moment like you would see in a venture back business post product market fit. We had to have the discipline to have product market fit from day one because that was existential theft to expansion. And same with Al leading our technology group. It's the businesses had to get traction and generate revenue from early on. And I think that discipline had really served the business well because it, then it could grow sustainably and expand at a pace, which was also delivering good outcomes for citizens, because the only way that a contract is extended is if you show that, hey, this digital solution actually helped stop the spread of COVID, or it actually helped improve infant mortality rates in a country. So I think that discipline also helped stay course towards delivering outcomes. Here you are, a guest on the Avalanche VC podcast, talking about the benefits of non-venture-backed financing. This is, I don't know if this is allowed. I was going to say that I think some of the inflection points for DA as a business came from 
effective reputation over time. Like those early years were it's so personality driven and like founder driven. And then at some point people realize or the market realizes that you're not going away and that like a bunch of seeds that you planted in people's minds are like, oh, I we do this, like we believe in this and we have the proof points to back it up. And what it made me appreciate about building businesses is that you really have to survive much longer than you expect, like four years, five years, six years before you might get that sort of compounding inflection point. And the second thing I think we saw, particularly in digital, was COVID, the the COVID period forced people to get online and to up their digital game and sectors like government where maybe people resisted and wanted to do things more in person or were just more comfortable and felt like they could very quickly had to learn different ways of working and engaging with citizens and upskill themselves. And I think delivery associated in the whole industry is still seeing the benefits of that upskilling. If you think about what you've done in the past here and seeing the evolution over the past decade of how you deliver public goods, we're future focused here. So let's look what in the next 10 years, if Delivery Associates continues to grow and be successful. If the ideas within Deliverology spread, what does the future of delivering public goods look like? Yeah, I think there's a revolution happening with the advent of not just Gen AI, but a lot of the models out there and machine learning, uh, as well as what we're seeing in terms of on the data side. As in what we experienced prior, and one of the biggest problems of governments is actually siloed data. And data is politics, as we're all aware. And now with the advent of different tools, we're actually software, and this is actually speaks to a piece that Caitlin wrote in terms of uh, testing software products as successful of how autonomous they are. And we're seeing that across the public service delivery space, where there is potential and already now reality hitting of actually public service being delivered end-to-end by, by machines. And I recently were talking about passport applications, which a decade ago, it would be paper and pen and a bunch of politics, right? <laughs> and these days, it's digital end-to-end. And so those experiences extrapolated are going to revolutionize public sector service delivery increase efficiency, hopefully make taxpayers less crazy, and governments have to meet the moment. Otherwise, there was, to Saad's point, going to be election losses, right? We're super excited about this revolution, and I hope we're not just going to be in it for the ride, but in it in driver's seats. And the other thing is, typically, if you've seen the innovations on the cutting edge of technology and what in government, using your example, of the DMV situation, historically has been a huge gap. It's new technology is invented. It takes government 10 years to adopt it. And even when it does, it's after probably wasting several billion dollars on IBM or Accenture before they, they do anything. And I feel like that gap is closing from both sides. On the technology and venture capital side, previously GovTech would be somewhat dirty word, right? Like people wouldn't want to like invest in government technology because they just thought, hey, this is, this is very difficult. But now you're seeing technologists and venture firms 
really tackle that on with a longer term view and invest more and more in the sector. And then on the government side, governments are also under pressure to give their citizens a higher quality of services because of the transparency of information, because of more demands from citizens. And so now you're seeing governments also instead of contracting with IBM for a 10-year contract, go directly with innovative startups and go directly to implement the latest. And so I'm pretty optimistic that we can, over the next 10 years, see the gap between the fringes of new technologies and what as a citizen experiencing in government close and hopefully there'll be more and more new innovations coming to citizens from governments that are trying to deliver better services. Saad, maybe you could put an example behind that. I know there is a company where the first, one of the first investors in that recently raised a big round. Could Maybe you could describe what they do and how that's the future. Yeah, I'll give an example of this company, Pano AI, that's founded by a good friend of mine, Sonia, and I was one of the first investors in the company. I know I've recently raised a $17 million Series A extension on top of a $20 million Series A they raised last year. And that company is basically taking the latest of image recognition and artificial intelligence, applying it to a problem that has traditionally been solved by the public sector, which is early detection of fires and response to fires and forests, which has been plaguing all of the world because of global warming. And so by taking this technology, getting the best engineers from Silicon Valley to work on that, and then applying that to not a B2B SaaS software to help a corporation increase its sales, but to a real public outcome of preventing fires, providing better quality air to, to citizens, that company is now blazing a trail and really both advancing the technology and helping governments and other public sector utilities offer the latest to its citizens. And so I think that's a good example of a very unique point solution that was solved by DK, great technology and applying it to a government need. And I think there's lots of potential of people and entrepreneurs tackling other areas, which traditionally were seen in the public sector realm, but applying latest technologies to, to solve those problems. And as Ipano is a good example of this, both venture capitalists have come behind this as well as governments to make this into a sustainable business. Okay, that's the bull case. Is there a bear case here as well? I can think of a couple things, which is you're talking of private sector delivery with an optimistic lens, but some people might look at like the prison industrial complex and look at the privatization of government services as having a negative flavor. So it, it, there's various elements to this. So is there a bear case here that, that maybe requires a little more skepticism? Arvind, it really reminds me of the paper we co-wrote seeing beyond the mirage i was probably close like four or five years ago now we worked on it for a long time and it was pushing education ministers to see that they didn't have to just think that their job was to run a public education system but instead that their job was to ensure that every child had access to a high quality of education if you're a government minister who believes in that second path you really need to focus on accountability mechanisms to ensure you are buying results from the private sector and that those results have fidelity, right? And that you set the targets correctly. So if you're, if you have a private prison system and they're, and they are rewarded each time I get another prisoner, 
for this many days, I get more money as opposed to investing in maybe like a recidivism system where they're like, are there measures of efficiency of rehabilitating offenders and not making it input output based? And that's, I think, a technology, I think like that is a huge area for technology innovation itself is the continuous monitoring and evaluation of the right outcomes at a societal level in the public sector that are not necessarily financial. I just add, there's a super interesting innovation there that funnily enough, Saad has been at the forefront for which those externalities of the market and how to capture them. There's a movement in terms of Web3, right? As in where there's externalities and how you can bring market dynamics and capture those and potentially productize, commoditize them. And so there is a piece here and an energy that I think, again, the startups or the innovators in the world should try and tackle alongside governments. Like there, there's a movement that hopefully could avalanche. Sad, I think you were with the original papers with Caitlin on oceans of innovation and avalanches coming. Is that right? You, yeah. You were part of that. And then while you left and moved on to other things, she continued with Mirage and now Avalanche. She's taking all the natural elements that you left on the table. Yeah, which one is next? I want to see Mentat come back. (laughs) So I don't know if you guys know the reference, but I'm super excited for part two of Dune. Dune is an interesting book because it's like a fundamentally a government and citizenry conflict. But Mentat is a company that Saad founded when he went through Y Combinator. And one of the characters that is not fully explored enough in the Dune movies is the role of this Mentat or this human with a computer brain that is always like calculating the probabilities and able to think very logically, but sometimes can be outfoxed. Okay. All listeners of the pod should check out Dune. It's my favorite book of all time. And it's actually, like Caitlin was saying, it's pretty uh, prescient in terms of the things that we are talking about these days. So it was written in the 60s by Frank Herbert. And this concept of mentats came into being because in that universe, the artificial intelligences that were invented by humanity revolted and almost wiped out civilization. And there was a new rule passed that would make all computers and artificial intelligence illegal. And so these mentats were born out of the need to still do complex mathematics for plotting space journeys and all kinds of things. And so certain humans were trained to have extreme focused mental capacity similar to computers to do complex probability analysis and so on. And that's the kind of discussion we're having these days, right? Like how dangerous is artificial intelligence? How would humanity react to that? So I think that book is very relevant right now. But okay, so yeah, while we're talking about the future of technology, a lot of people position crypto as the antithesis to government in terms of being a trustless institution and avoiding centralized bureaucracy by going with a completely decentralized approach. Saad, having worked with governments in so many capacities, what attracted you to some of your current work in Web3? Where do you see both the differences and potentially the unifying characteristics? Yeah. So for background, currently I'm a partner at Superlayer. Superlayer is a venture studio, which means we raise capital like a venture fund in the GPLP model, but we only deploy it in our own ideas and companies that we co-found with entrepreneurs who have a particular industry or sector expertise. 
And the underlying theme across all of the companies I'm co-founding at Superlayer is that they all have a Web3 crypto element. Most of them are emerging market focused. Most of them are direct to consumer. And coming back to your question, Arvin, what excites me about crypto? Number one, crypto for the first time showed me that no matter who you are in the world, whether you're born trader sitting in New York or whether you're a farmer sitting in Nigeria, you for the first time had asset access to the same investment and asset class at the same time, which is pretty magical. Like right now, you the richer you get, the more access you have to certain things and that extends across countries as well. And crypto for the first time, unified the and everyone has access to the same asset class. And I really like the kind of economic developmental aspect of it, of bringing people who are underbanked or don't have access to good investment vehicles, access to the same stuff that people in the States and the UK have. The second thing that's exciting about crypto is as a product builder, it gives you a new surface area to experiment and build products around. The one thing that crypto does is that it really helps you through tokenization, distribute ownership of the platform and product you create to your early adopters, users, and later adopters as well. And that helps you construct both interesting economic models, but also product growth models, product reward systems that result in a product that's owned by thousands of people rather than just the founders, the early employees, and the investors, which is what happens typically. And this new kind of model which crypto enables gives you the potential for building really exciting products. And the third thing which I find really interesting is, which is relevant in this context, is there's a lot of people who say, hey, government on one side and crypto on the other side, and crypto is anti-government. And there's certainly one way to look at this. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I think a government's role is to serve its citizens. And if a government is not fulfilling its promises to citizens, then there's room for the private sector or for distributed systems to step in as well. Like I originally from Pakistan, I was there when the government blocked everyone's bank accounts and took people's life savings and prevented people from having access to it. And I feel like as a citizen, you should have some defenses against things like that from happening. And definitely there are rules and checks and balances in place to hold government to account. But unfortunately, there's certain part of the world where the government's systems don't have those checks and balances and the systems are not that resilient. And in those instances, citizens should have the pathway to live their own life and have a good outcome for their families. And crypto gives people an alternate path to that. So yeah, so those are the three things that got me excited. The product implications, the access to this asset class for emerging markets, and then thirdly, empowering individuals to take charge of their own destiny and not being dependent on others. That's great. Caitlin, what do you think? Do you agree where government is failing, crypto can step in, but is there a world where government can embrace crypto even in the absence of particular failure? What is crypto really? And I think the technological infrastructure that can be enabled to facilitate people having access directly to their assets is incredibly important. And that's what people talk about crypto systems being trustless. That's what they mean. But let's not forget that, that the industry of crypto has a huge credibility problem with the demise of FTX and with, I think the CEO of Celsius was just 
brought in on seven different charges. And so some of the, the actors in the system were terrible, fraudulent actors building centralized systems that people couldn't verify the actual truth or reality for. And government has had to, like, in its traditional sense, has had to step in and be a regulator of some of those massive failures. But I think to be positive is that we are now at the very beginning of the next wave of crypto web three, whenever you want to call it, where those frauds are now finally very visible. They are being brought to justice. And that means like good actors and people who continue to be building behind their communities and their technologies will see, I think, a lot of massive success in the coming two to five years. By the way, I'm predicting that Michael Lewis's book on SBF is going to be his best book yet. The fact that he had access to this entire story and the way he tells stories, I think is just going to be absolutely killer. Uh, Okay, so let's shift gears to a segment we call hot takes here. So it's obviously the future. So we're talking to visionaries, people like you who can see the future that we mere mortals are yet to understand. Can you tell us from your perspective, we'll start with you, Saad, then you, Al. What's something that's obvious to you about the next decade or two that most people still don't realize? Yeah, I think one thing that's really obvious is that these auto GPT agents that you're seeing people build and play around with are going to have a huge impact in how citizens interact with public services. And so I'm excited to start to see some of that in how public sector companies and how private sector companies are offering that already. And I feel like that's going to have a huge impact on fixing public services and potentially even making the DMV a very pleasant experience. That's a good one. I like that. I have to steal Saad's thunder. For some reason, it's a legacy issue as well, because he was one of the founders of DA and DA Digital, and I came in (laughs) second. And I have to say, similar to what Saad said, and in the words of Reid Hoffman, let's not call it AI, let's call it human amplification. I don't think folks actually understand the potential impact for good on what AI will do and how much work efficiency. Right now, even in my day-to-day, I'm using a couple of models sometimes to automate some of my work streams. And I tell you, I probably reduce my work by 5x. I'm not going to tell that to my employer, but I have more time with my family, more gym time, better sustainability. And where do you stand on AI taking jobs versus creating jobs? I'm sure we'll take jobs. And I do think that there needs to be a mature conversation to be had about what we call the universal income and then also job expectations in terms of hours of work. I think the, the next decade is going to be one of much more increased productivity and increased GDP. And that's going to showcase, but then how do you spread those rewards? And I think there's a piece about equity and and also unleashing human creativity. So there's some conversations to be had, but overall, I'm long on it on the future. Yeah, and I think uh, to add to that, the way I am seeing it um, already come into effect in the way we are building software products is it's increasing efficiency of engineers, it's increasing efficiency of designers, and to Al's point, you need fewer people to get the same amount of work done. But I also think like the other implication of that is that it's going to unleash productivity gains in employees and those who take the leap to upskill themselves in these new technologies 
will definitely have jobs and potentially people who stay employed as we just improve our GDP as a society and improve everyone's standards of life. So I think that's the optimistic view of looking at this, that humans are resilient, they'll upskill themselves, we'll increase output, and everyone's life will be better off, similar to what we saw in the Industrial Revolution, but it might result in some short-term pain. It's an, it's an avalanche. You can see the science of it coming, and it's going to, before we know it, it'll be here. I'm excited for the future. And you, you, we want to make sure you're well positioned for it because it, it does feel like there's so much advances that are happening all the time that you have to be always learning. You have to be in the stream yeah. of information. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind and you really want to be the owl who's found ways of driving it, personal efficiency and productivity before other people because you know that there'll be another leap and you'll be on that yeah. leap and that leap. And I think one of the things this does is it helps individuals that can access that learning will move much faster versus in, like institutions are going to be way more amorphous on their AI adoption. And it's still going to be driven by individuals. And I think it gives the individual a, a leg up if they take advantage of it. But if they don't, which is like 90% yeah. of people, it's, yeah. I think, very scary. My, my view, I think. AI is going to be like every other technological revolution of the past where there was predictions that it would diminish work, but in fact, our capacity for what we want and how we can create it will grow exponentially to fill whatever need that is. But with the major caveat being that AGI, artificial general intelligence, may be something completely different. And what I'm still not clear about is whether LLMs or anything that any of the technological path that we're on is on a path to AGI or not. But I think within the current constraint of GPT-4 and what you can do within the AI landscape, I think it's going to look very much like previous technological shifts. Okay, so let's end here with the last question, which we've already a little bit touched on with you, Saad, but we'll see if it's your answer is the same. So Caitlin has this list that she calls my younger self, and it's a bunch of timeless books that she would tell her younger self to reread or read right away when she was younger. So we're asking all our guests, tell us one book that you'd want to share with your younger self and why. It's a classic, but Marcus Aurelius, The Meditations. And I, for me, I've recently been reading it and I just found so much wisdom in something that's been written a thousand or so years ago, but is so poignant and relevant to today's speed of our lives. And I think the, the actions of being good, of being in the flow, of having quiet space, being true to each other, to the people you work with, your family, are such wisdoms that in the fast pace of the world, we sometimes lose sight of. And I have to say, like, using tools uh, like Pi and ChatGPT to actually get some of these wisdoms. So they've all been uploaded there and having a conversation around them is a beautiful human experience. So I'm excited to do that. You can actually have a conversation Mark Aurelius these days. All right, Saad, that's a good one. Yeah, I would double down on Dune. I think I would recommend my thoughts and future self to read it. Nice. Thank you all so much. This was fantastic. Anything to plug anywhere to find you? on social people want to follow up yeah follow up on twitter sad h risley
Ahalela, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Do you think people can spell Halele L? No. Maybe we need to, I don't know how we phonetically say that. Yeah, I know they can't because Nagarajan is literally of such a nice, precisely phonetic name. And there is a approximately 4% success rate in people spelling it. And so it is, I give Halele no chance. No chance. Zero.